Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, we're going to start with verse 13. And as you're doing that, let me share with you some things that are on my heart. By now, most of us have heard about the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage. It was a couple weeks ago. And we know that Christian websites have been lit up for several days afterwards about that. And there have been all kinds of responses to the court's decision, whether it's been anger or fear or sadness and despair, um, all kinds of things going on out there. And many of you have had questions about what it all means for Christians, what it will mean, and what it means for Grace Bible Church. Now, predictions have ranged from, don't worry, nothing's going to happen, all the way to, we're all going to jail. Um, somewhere in between, and who knows. We have seen recently a prominent case in the news that's coming out of a bakery in Oregon it was owned and operated by a Christian couple. You see, the owners refused to bake a wedding cake for a lesbian couple at, for their wedding. Now, this case started back in 2013, but it's come to head now as they just had a, a ruling on them um, from the uh, uh, labor commissioner in Oregon. And they were charged with violation of Oregon law that prohibits discrimination, and they've been ordered to pay a, um, to the couple $135,000. Now, this is not the first such case in the world. There's a bakery in Ireland that was similarly charged when they refused to make a cake. This is going on all over the world. Now, remember, this case started in 2013. It's not something that just happened in the last week. It's been brewing. Now, it's generally believed by a lot of Christians that religious freedom will be challenged and that we as Christians will be on the losing end. That's what some people are predicting. And thus, we have those feelings of fear, of sadness, of despair, and sometimes even misplaced anger. Now, I've been asked questions by some of you about what Grace Bible Church will do in light of all these recent developments. And I've shared response. At Grace Bible Church, we follow the Bible. We follow the Word of God. And we will preach the full counsel of God. We won't admit passages because they don't conform to secular sensibilities or because they're not politically correct. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we preach all of scripture, not some of it. And we will continue to preach Christ at Grace Bible Church. That will not change. I had originally intended to preach to you out of 1 Peter 3.15. That was going to be the focus of what I wanted to preach this morning. But as I studied the passage in its greater context, the verses before it, I realized that it might be comforting and encouraging for those of us in, these, in this time to focus on how we're going to react, what's going to happen around us. Because I know that there are some that are troubled, some that are in despair, some that are afraid, some that are sad, and yes, some that are angry. So we're going to look today at 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now, let me give you some background to 1 Peter. It was written about persecution, about suffering in tough times. And Peter wrote it to encourage and exhort those who are suffering for the sake of Christ. It was written to Gentile Christians by the Apostle Peter in about 64 AD, give or take a couple of years. This is while Christians were suffering while Nero was the emperor. Now Nero was suspected of having set fire to Rome in 64 AD. Um, 
Yesterday was the anniversary of that. It was on July 18th in 64 that Rome burned. People suspect Nero set that fire, but he blamed it on the Christians. He said the Christians had set the fire. But even before then, state persecution of Christians was not an issue. You see, the state, the Roman government, viewed Christianity as just a sect of Judaism. And they paid very little attention to it. It was just an offshoot here, and, and that didn't bother them a whole lot. But the animosity, the hostility, and the persecution actually came from society. It came from the people in the country. It first came from the Jews. You see, they viewed Christianity as a heresy. Jesus isn't God. We're worshiping a man. The Messiah is yet to come. And they viewed the things that Christians said as wrong. Hence the persecution. That's what we read in Acts with Apostle Paul. Then it came from the pagans. And they viewed Christians as different. See, Christians wouldn't participate in their rituals. Christians would be morally separate. They, they, they stood aside. Christians wouldn't visit hospitals because hospitals were dedicated to the pagan god, and I'm going to try hard to pronounce this, Esculapius. I had probably massacred it, but... They wouldn't go to schools because stories of pagan gods were told as true. Does that sound familiar? Think of Darwin, think of evolution. Think of how history is taught. A Christian sculptor during that time would find himself in trouble for not making a pagan god. Sound familiar? There are things Christians would not do because of moral implications. They wouldn't go to the gladiator games because of the bloodshed and their disregard for life. They wouldn't go to the theater because plays were cruel and coarse. They, wouldn't, they, would, they would not take weak or unwanted children into the woods and expose them so that they would die. What's our modern day equivalency of that? Abortion. Political, cultural, entertainment, athletic, and economic affairs they would not participate in because they were all loaded with idolatry. And we do the same things today. Think about how many voted in the last election. Think of who Christians would vote for and who they would not vote for, or perhaps they wouldn't vote at all. Think of the types of movies we don't go to or the television shows we don't watch. Think of the companies we won't invest in because of their products or because there are things we won't buy because of where the profits go to, the causes they support. And then the pagans began making charges against the Christians, absurd charges. One of those was cannibalism. See, Jesus spoke about, his, about the bread as his body and the cup as his blood. So they call Christians cannibals. They said the Christians engaged in incest. People refer to each other as their brother, as their sister. And think about how they would look at this. Madeline is my sister in the Lord, she is also my wife. And they had a problem with that. They accused Christians of irrationalism. They didn't think. They didn't use logic. Today, Christians are called haters, believers of fairy tales, called intolerant. Society is no different. 2,000 years, we face the same persecutions the same view of society. 
All of this forms that background for Peter. And in 1 Peter 4.4, Peter even mentions it. He says, talking about their long list of debaucheries, their long list of sins, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So it's against this backdrop that Peter writes to encourage the brothers and sisters to persevere in the face of tough times. These words are very appropriate and every bit is appropriate for us today and effective for us today. So we wanna look at 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. So follow along as I read. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Some of you may have the New American Standard. Some of you may have the NIV or other translations. Verse 13 starts, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So I haven't put an outline on the back of your bulletins, but I do have some points if you want to write down section headings. The first one that I labeled is, what harm shall befall us? What harm shall befall us? And we'll look at 1 Peter three thirteen through 14. Now in the verses prior to this, um, starting back up in, in verse um, 8, um, Peter has provided a list of godly virtues for all believers. These include unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And he shares the blessings that are found in Psalm 34, 12 through 16. He talks about a love of life. He talks about seeing good days. And then he says that this is where they come from. Keeping one's tongue from evil and speaking deceit. Turning from evil and doing good. Seeking and pursuing peace. In 1 Peter 3.12 he tells us, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, if we are doing righteousness, God's ears are open to us. His eyes are upon us. But those who do evil, the Lord is against. In 1 Peter 3.13, he starts off this section by asking a rhetorical question. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, so when we talk about good, there's many, many references in the Bible about doing good. Doing good often refers to how we treat other people. Psalm 37.3 tells us we are told to trust in the Lord and do good. In Proverbs 3.27, we're told not to withhold good from others. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. It's through God's grace that we have sufficiency to abound in every good work. We are not to grow weary of doing good. 
And we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. See, there are many, many more passages that talk about good, and we could spend just a whole sermon talking about what is good from this verse. You know, people today, even the most atheistic people, still have a concept of good. Now, what they consider to be good might be skewed, but they understand the concept. They understand what what being good is. They may claim that man is good. All men are good. What does the Bible tell us? Just the opposite. We're all sinners. There is none righteous. None seek for God. We all start from that position. But nonetheless, they they have a concept of good, and they applaud generosity and kindness. And we've seen this in all kinds of things on YouTube videos. We've we've seen it in slogans and sayings. We've seen it in news stories. How many of you heard of the term pay it forward? Where you do a good deed for someone that you don't know, and then they do a good deed for someone they don't know, and then that person does a good deed for someone he doesn't know, and it's called pay it forward. There have been YouTube videos that deal with um, kindness from police officers, giving a homeless man some shoes, someone stopping and and paying for food for somebody, kids who have collected money for for people in need. And of course, we all understand the concept of organ donors. There have been large campaigns for that, to leave behind, do good for someone, even in your tragedy. And these are all very good things. We're not decrying any of those. So people understand this. And likewise, people detest fraud and victimization. If I say the name Bernie Madoff, what does that remind you of? There are scam artists that are out there. We see these in the newspaper. We see them on television. We know of people who prey on children. That dominates the news regularly. People even decry those that would hurt animals. We see things in commercials for for shelters. We see things for the SPCA. And they show pictures of sad dogs. We want to do good for them. And these are all good too. This is not wrong. So people have this. They understand that. So Peter is noting here that generally, generally people won't harm you if you're doing good. People don't get in trouble for giving to the SPCA, for offering funds for shelters, for advocating for domestic violence victims. But you see, he quickly dismisses any thought that you will never be harmed if you pursue righteousness. Because verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. See, the reality is, is that we will suffer if we are true disciples of Christ. Jesus himself was criticized. He was persecuted, and he was crucified for his righteousness. Luke 17, 25 tells us that it was God's plan for Jesus to suffer and be rejected. Suffering is the cost of discipleship is found in Luke. See, Jesus tells us that to follow him, we must take up our cross daily. We must surrender our lives to him and to what sufferings abound. He warns his disciples that if he is persecuted, then they can expect to be persecuted too. You can expect persecution. The prophets suffered, and yet they endured. Paul suffered greatly at the hands of man for the cause of Christ. We find that Five times he received 40 lashes less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. 
He writes that he was in danger from robbers, from Jews, from Gentiles, and false brothers. And eventually he was beheaded. Tradition tells us that of the 12 apostles, only John was not martyred. All the other apostles were martyred. But even then, in his old age, John was banished to the island of Patmos, which is a barren, small little island in the Aegean Sea. Peter tells us that if we do suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said that those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. That's in Matthew 5.10. Likewise, those who are reviled persecuted and have all kinds of evil uttered against them falsely on account of Christ are blessed. Are these things happening today? Peter said we're blessed and today we are blessed. You see, he said, you are to rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Now, Peter can make this claim of blessing from firsthand experience. This isn't Peter writing some lofty thing and saying, well, here's what Jesus said and, and we, can, we can rely on that and yes, we can. But Peter speaks from experience. He and John were beaten and told not to speak in the name of Jesus. He was imprisoned. And yet they both rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. We find that in Acts 5. Peter himself, after he wrote this, went on to be crucified. And when he was crucified, you recall what what happened in there based on tradition. Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified in the manner of his Lord. And not only that, tradition says that Peter had to watch while his wife was first executed. And his words to her were, remember our Lord. So Peter was not a stranger to suffering. James says, count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's looking back to Isaiah 8, 12, and 13. And the verse says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and him be your dread. Do you recall what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28? Fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We're not to fear man. We're to fear God. Paul tells us in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He writes, although we're being killed all day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He writes, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. They can harm us, but they can't separate us from God. They can't take God's love for us away. 
One of my favorite hymns is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One of the last verses in there, it was written by Martin Luther um, at a time of persecution. And I just, I, I get goosebumps every time I hear just the, one of the two lines in that last verse. The body they may kill, but truth abideth still. You see, you can kill me, but it doesn't change the truth. You're denying the truth. I may be gone, I'll be with the Lord, but the truth remains. I get chills every time I sing that and think about that. So ultimately then, who can harm us? This is a temporary way station for us. Our home is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Peter tells us not to be troubled. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Are you suffering today for righteousness sake? Are you afraid of what will come upon you when you stand in the midst of a politically correct society? Do you fear Jesus' persecution? Take hold of his promise. Take his peace. Well, the next section I titled, What Honor Shall We Give? What honor shall we give? And this is from 1 Peter 3, 15a, the first part of the verse. Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, the word but is a connective word, and it's a word of contrast. And sometimes it means except for the fact. For example, he's attractive, but he spits when he talks. He's smart enough but he has no common sense. He's a good preacher, but he goes on too long. <laughs> Other times, the word but means on the contrary. Don't bolt your food, but eat slowly. He sings well, but I don't. So connecting with verse 14, in which Peter tells us not to fear, nor be troubled, he tells us rather to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Don't fear don't be troubled. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. If you're reading in the NASB, it'll say sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. If you're reading in the NIV, it says in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Now, the main verb in this verse is sanctify. Some people think it's defense or give a defense. The main verb here is sanctify. Now, give a defense appears later, but that's not the main thought here. Sanctify means to set apart or to consecrate. It also means giving Christ the primary place of worship, the primary place of adoration, the primary exaltation in our lives. Peter again refers to Isaiah 8.13, which we considered earlier, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. So what does it mean to sanctify Christ in our hearts? It is to know that he is God, that there is none other. It is to submit to his sovereign majesty, to recognize his eternality, to acknowledge his holiness, to praise his greatness, to serve only him, to fear only him, to obey him, to bow to him, to magnify his glory, to extol his preeminence, to submit to his will, to glory in him. And if you want the verses for those references, see me afterwards, I'll give you all of those verses. 
talks about setting apart, consecrating, honoring Christ. To sum it up, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. I think that's a good summation right there of setting apart Christ, sanctifying Christ, consecrating Christ in my heart, for me to live is Christ. All of this is an inward acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. If you sanctify him in your heart, you will remain steadfast in times of persecution and suffering. Jesus said that, uh, uh, excuse me, go back to Psalms, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Right from Psalms. Jesus said that everyone who comes to him and hears his words is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. When our lives are centered on Christ, our rock, we are able to respond appropriately to the trials and the sufferings we are sure to endure. So I ask you, do you sanctify Christ in your hearts? Is he your Lord? For you is to live Christ. If you can't answer yes to that question, I urge you, brothers and sisters, turn to him now. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The next section is, what hope shall we share? What hope shall we share? It comes from 1 Peter 3, 15b. And that part of the verse reads, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter tells us to always be prepared. Now how do you prepare for something? Well, if you're preparing for exam in school, you study. If you're taking a part in a stage play, you rehearse. If you're gonna run an endurance race, you train. For a sports contest, you practice. Now how many of us would expect success in any important endeavor if all we did was go over something once. What kind of grades would you expect if you didn't study? Now some of us accepted mediocre grades. I was one of those guys that told my mom, why study? If I can get a B, who cares? Nobody's gonna ask me 30 years from now whether I was a valedictorian or how I did in high school. And it, and it frustrated my mom to no end. And it's a bad habit to get into. Because if you're in that habit, you have to ask, when you meet Jesus, what are you gonna tell your savior? Oh, I read it over once, that was good enough. I got, a, I got a C, I got a B, I passed. You see, you're telling Jesus he wasn't worth the effort. So you didn't prepare to share the gospel. Oh, may that never be. What type of performance on stage would you expect if you didn't rehearse? Wouldn't the audience see through your performance and think you weren't really sincere in your acting? What does a lack of preparedness tell someone about how important Christ is to you? And how far do you think you would run in a marathon if you didn't train? You'd drop out quickly in exhaustion and frustration and you'd be giving up the prize. But in Hebrews we're told, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And how sure of victory would you be over an opponent in a tennis match if you feel you didn't have to practice? You'd have no defense against his serves, his lobs, his slams. How can you hope to have victory over the wiles of Satan if you don't learn and put into practice what you learn? 
Again, in Hebrews we read, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So what's the best way to prepare? Well, the first is study. Read your Bible every day. We have reading sheets on the back. Read your Bible. Rehearse. You've often heard Scott say, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself constantly of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Train. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So memorize scripture. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then practice. Meditate on what you've studied and learned. Discuss it with others. This is one of the great things about community groups. We discuss what we're learning. We discuss God's word. Apply it in our lives. And share what you've learned. When your other people ask you for counsel, when they ask your advice, give them biblical wisdom. Practice it. Peter says to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What is that hope? We know what it is to hope. We take medicine in hope that it will heal us. We hope for comfort and rest. We hope for a place to live. We buy a house, we rent an apartment, we, we, we want a place, we hope for a place to live, especially if we're moving to a new area. We work in the hopes that we'll save up money to buy things. Our hope is the promise of God. It is our future glory in the resurrection. It is our future in the presence of Christ. It is the gospel. Our hope is Jesus Christ. And we have a heavenly hope. Healing, in heaven there's no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. We have healing from our sins. Our rest is in Christ, it gives us comfort. We have an eternal home to live in. We have an eternal abode, it's heaven. And we know that we will have treasures in heaven. We have a hope. So we're to give a defense of this hope. Now some of your translations may say to give an account or give an answer. The word defense comes from the Greek word apologia or apologia. Apologetics comes from this. It means a defense of the gospel. And it is for this you are to be prepared. Not merely to declare Christianity, but to explain your rationale, articulate why you believe. Now when I wanted to preach this passage originally as I was preparing to do that, I intended to focus on this aspect. What are biblical apologetics? What, it, what apologetics is and is not? And what are the mechanics of how to share the gospel? As I studied, I saw the greater application for us at this time, so this is why I'm preaching what I'm preaching. But I'm gonna leave you with the thought that there's a part two because I wanna go into that. How is it that we share the gospel? What are apologetics? But I'm not gonna leave you by, by preaching the need and not giving you something, so here it is. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, share your testimony. See, we practice this when we baptize people. They share their testimony before the congregation. They give a defense for a reason for the hope that is in them. If you attended the VBS uh, event Friday night, you heard Jonah Cruz give a reason for the hope that is in him. If you haven't asked him, or you haven't heard him, go ask Felix Ordonitsa about a reason for the hope that is in him. You heard Darren talk about a reason for the hope that is in him. We've heard about changed lives. 
We've heard about healed relationships. We've heard about the power of sin broken and the freedom that comes with that. And by reflecting, by considering your own salvation, your own hope, you're sanctifying Christ in your heart. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember, be prepared to study. Rehearse, train, and practice. And preparing to tell others of your hope prepares you to not fear or be troubled in times of persecution. You're reminding yourself of Christ. So I ask you, do you read and study your Bible regularly? If not, why not? Do you preach the gospel to yourself? Ask yourself this question, am I prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in me to anyone who asks? Well, this last section is called, what behavior shall we display? What behavior shall we display? And this is 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17. And it's actually the back part of the verse. It says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter says to give our defense with gentleness and respect. Paul wrote that he was an ambassador for Christ, imploring people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And so are we if we belong to Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. We speak on Christ's behalf. We are not representing ourselves. Therefore, when we're responding to persecution, we're responding to troubled times, it is inappropriate to use words of anger. How many of you have heard people in the heat of the moment, you're going to hell! It's inappropriate to do name-calling. Sinner! No matter how true, these have no place in a gentle, respectful defense of the gospel. Who did Jesus save his most ardent condemnation for? He saved it for the Pharisees, the religious hypocrites. You can find this in Matthew 23. Peter writes that when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Remember, in Proverbs, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Notice that, people, or that Peter does not tell us to be prepared to condemn those who persecute us. He doesn't say for us to start quoting the Ten Commandments or to list all the ways people are violating God's laws. He says instead to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. He doesn't say to condemn the sinner. He says to commend the Savior. Let me say that again. He doesn't say to condemn the sinner. He says to commend the Savior. He goes on to write in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when we are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, we have a God-given sense of right and wrong. It's called a conscience. We know when we've sinned. And the continual practice of sin causes us to be hardened and insensitive to our consciences. Having a good conscience does not mean having never sinned or not sinning. I'd love to stand up here and tell you that I never get impatient or I never think of myself first. I'd love to say I never grumble, I never complain. If I lied to you, I would not have a good conscience. But a good conscience does not come from not having sinned, but rather from confessing and repenting of that sin. This is the freedom that Jesus Christ offers. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
if you have a good conscience, you're not bothered by guilt over the things that people may say about you, of the false accusations they bring against you. I'm not a hater, and I don't worry about that. I have a good conscience. But then I endeavor not to give those who would persecute the ammunition to sustain that charge. We're to behave so that when they slander and revile us, we're not put to shame. Rather, it's their conduct and their false charges that will put them to shame. And not only put to shame on earth, but before the God who will judge the living and the dead. Matthew 12, 36 says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now finally, in verse 17, Peter tells us, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now see, if you do evil, suffering is your just penalty. We can expect that. But if you suffer for having done nothing wrong, but rather for doing what is good, then you must recognize that God has ordained the suffering for a reason. Now perhaps that reason is to bring another to Christ. When someone asks you, why do you take the name calling? Why do you take the persecution? Why do you take the grief? Tell them about Christ. You give them a defense for the reason and the hope that is in you. Perhaps the suffering is to train you in righteousness, to strengthen your faith. If that's the case, I hope you can join Peter and John rejoicing and being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. So I ask you, how is your conscience? Have you confessed and repented of sin? What will your accusers say about you? And when faced with persecution, how will you react? Will you condemn the sinner or will you commend the Savior? So let me end by asking you, if you belong to Christ, are you prepared? You will face trials and you will be persecuted. But don't fear or be troubled. Christ who faced death for us strengthens us and provides for us. Honor him in your heart. Be prepared to share the gospel and keep a clear conscience. But perhaps you don't belong to Christ. I urge you not to go another day, another hour, another minute without turning to him. You see, he's calling you. Yes, he's calling you to a life of trial, but also to a life of peace, of joy, of reconciliation to God. You know, trials like exercise and physical training, they're temporarily uncomfortable. I don't like sweating a whole lot. My muscles hurt. I get tired. One of my favorite things to say after a, day at the, or after a, a time at the gym is the best part is being over. Best part is being done. But you see, the joy of the fruit of that discomfort is long-lasting. If it's physical training, you're in better shape. You're ready to endure. You feel better. The same thing with the trials in life that God sets in your path. The joy of the fruit of that discomfort is eternal. Now, if you want to talk about this more, if you're not saved, if you don't belong to Jesus Christ, please see Pastor Ted. Please see Darren. Please see me. Because we would love to give you a reason for the hope that is in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We love you. Lord, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, who suffered cruelly, who faced death. Father, Jesus did this for love. He did this so we could be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray for each and every one here that we are indeed prepared to give a defense of the hope that is in us to anyone who asks. Father, that we are not fearful or troubled in times of suffering. We do not worry about persecution, but count it as joy that we are considered worthy to suffer for your name's sake. Father, may we honor you in our hearts. Lord, I pray that each person here studies, learns, rehearses, practices, trains, Father, so they are indeed ready for when that moment comes to share Jesus Christ, to share the reason they trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.